This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State Senator Lena Taylor has announced her bid for lieutenant governor, the first Democrat to announce her candidacy for the seat. At least four Republicans have filed paperwork to run for the seat, according to a search of Wisconsin Elections Commission paperwork. Current Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is not running again as he's seeking election to Congress in a crowded field for 2022. And in more election news, State Senator Brad Paff has announced a run for Wisconsin's 3rd Congressional District, which represents the western part of the state and much of the Driftless region. The seat is currently held by Democrat Ron Kind, who announced in August that he is not seeking another term in 2022. Paff currently represents a portion of that district as State Senator, a seat he's held for just eight months since he won it last November. Paff, a Democrat, was formerly part of Governor Evers' cabinet as secretary-designee of the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, or DATCAP. He was fired from that role by the state GOP, which failed to confirm his appointment to DATCAP after objecting to pointed statements from PAF over the need to deliver immediate funding for mental health to farmers. PAF joins at least one other Democratic contender running in the race, Brett Knudsen of Holman, Wisconsin. A federal judge has set a hearing date for a legal challenge that's seeking to block Wisconsin's fall wolf hunt. The initial lawsuit was brought by six Chippewa tribes last month. The tribes argue that the hunt's quota of 300 wolves was not based on sound science. According to the Associated Press, on Friday the tribes filed a motion for a preliminary injunction to block the hunt. U.S. District Judge James Patterson has set the hearing for that injunction for October 29th, just six days before the hunt is scheduled to begin. The saga of the Mount Pleasant Foxconn facility continues, as the Taiwan-based manufacturer has spurned the plant for an electric car manufacturing deal. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that the company will instead purchase an assembly plant in Lordstown, Ohio to manufacture vehicles for Fisker Automotive. Foxconn has repeatedly shifted its goals for its Mount Pleasant operation and has regularly tangled with state regulators since the project broke ground. Dumpty Humpty has been returned to his rightful owners after a suspect in the case came forward to confess to the Eggman's kidnapping. The statue, which depicts Humpty Dumpty on the toilet, was stolen from Art Fair on the Square on September 25th. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the work of art is valued at $1,400. An investigation into the theft is ongoing. The Capital Times reports that Madison City Clerk Maribeth Witzel-Bell has been subpoenaed as part of a Republican-led investigation into the November 2020 presidential election. The subpoenas were issued to clerks across the state by former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who is leading the investigation. As part of the order, Gableman is compelling Witzel-Bell to appear in Brookfield on October 15th to give testimony about the election. And now for your daily COVID-19 news and numbers. Statewide, the seven-day average for new confirmed cases of COVID-19 stands at 2,508. All counties in Wisconsin are either at very high or critically high disease activity level. Local health officials have renewed the Dane County mandate to wear indoor face coverings for another month. The countywide mask mandate, which has the same requirements as the last order, expires November 5th. 
About 90% of Dane County residents who are 12 or older have gotten at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. That's about 73% of the entire Dane County population that has had one COVID-19 shot, higher than the state average of 60%. And now, on to today's top stories. Wisconsin is knee-deep into its redistricting process. Across the state, lawmakers are rushing to pull voting districts together ahead of next year's elections. For the latest redistricting roundup, we turn to our producer, Jonah Chester. Madison's redistricting committee has given its approval to a new aldermanic district map. The proposed map, which still needs final approval from the city council, would preserve the UW-Madison campus as a single district. That comes after criticism that previously proposed maps would have split the student district. Alder Juliana Bennett, who represents the area on the Common Council, raised her concerns about those maps during last Thursday's redistricting committee meeting. These maps are by no means acceptable to representing UW-Madison students. They do, in fact, dilute the student voice and student participation in local government. And I wish that these maps wouldn't be shoved down our throats as anywhere near acceptable for maintaining the community of interest that UW students are. Bennett, who is not a member of the redistricting committee, gave her approval to the alternate map that combines UW-Madison campus housing into a single district. According to city planning documents, the proposed district map also minimizes splitting up neighborhood associations. Aldermanic district lines will receive final approval in early November, just a few weeks before Dane County approves its supervisory districts. Also on Thursday, the county's redistricting commission passed off three district maps for Dane County Board supervisors. Those maps will be before county leaders this evening. And as it turns out, Thursday was a big day for redistricting news as Wisconsin's People's Maps Commission released its legislative and congressional map recommendations. That nonpartisan body was established by Governor Tony Evers in his 2020 State of the State address and has spent the past year collecting public input and feedback on Wisconsin's redistricting process. Speaking at Thursday's meeting, Commission Chair Chris Ford said that the group will continue accepting public feedback on the proposed maps. It's important to note that these maps are not the final maps. More changes will come after tonight's meeting. We've heard from over 1,800 Wisconsinites in 68 counties from over 321 municipalities. But we aren't done yet. Uh, you may go to the portal to view these uh, maps and comments for the maps will close October 7th at 11.59 p.m. The state's Republican-held legislature isn't required to consider the commission's maps. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Republicans would keep their advantage over legislative Democrats under the commission's recommendations, but that dominance would slip slightly. The commission's proposed maps redraw some district lines drafted by Republicans in 2011. Those maps, which were challenged all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, were drawn behind closed doors and heavily favored the GOP. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Plans remain in place for a proposed $700 million natural gas plant in northwestern Wisconsin. However, it still faces a legal challenge from environmental opponents who believe it will ultimately be a sunken cost. For more, we go to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Legal proceedings continue involving a proposed natural gas plant for northwestern Wisconsin. The plans have been approved by state regulators, but opponents say there are still several ways the facility could harm residents, including their pocketbooks. Dairyland Power Cooperative and Minnesota Power want to construct the $700 million plant in Superior. 
Groups such as the Sierra Club say recent studies, including one from the Rocky Mountain Institute, have shown natural gas facilities are more of a cost burden as opposed to clean energy projects. The chapter's Jadine Sonata says this effort would be a waste of resources. This plant would be a stranded asset, meaning it's uneconomic to operate by the early 2030s. As clean energy costs trend lower, Sonata says researchers have noted options such as wind and solar would save utility customers more money. Opponents add there are broader environmental concerns for all of Wisconsin, including methane emissions. Sierra Club is part of a lawsuit seeking to overturn permits approved by the state. The utilities contend the plant could serve as a bridge fuel as they transition from coal plants to clean energy sources. But the Rocky Mountain Institute's Mark Dyson says his 2019 study found that 90% of 88 proposed gas plants in the U.S., including the Superior facility, would not be economically feasible. The costs that a utility would incur to build and run a gas plant generally exceed the cost that that same utility would incur to build and operate a portfolio of clean energy resources. Dyson says he's in the process of updating the analysis, which is expected to show the 2019 findings still hold true. The Namaji Trail Energy Center recently cleared a legal hurdle on the Minnesota side, but Dyson says the public should look no further in finding examples of a project losing steam. He points to Minnesota's XL Energy downsizing plans for a proposed gas plant earlier this year amid public pressure. In part, it's due to the continued cost declines of renewables. Aside from the legal challenge, Wisconsin groups opposed to the project hope concerned residents appeal to Dairyland Power in hopes of a similar outcome. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. things are certain in life, death and taxes. It's the former item that occupied most of the professional career of George Hesselberg. For more than 40 years, Hesselberg covered a little bit of everything for the Wisconsin State Journal, but his favorite beat was the obituaries page. Hesselberg has assembled dozens of his obituaries and other articles about the dearly departed in a new book titled Deadlines, Slices of Life from the Obit Beat. Hesselberg joined Monday 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing last week to discuss his new book and the lessons he learned from studying the lives of others. What appealed to you about writing obituaries? Was that seen as a plum job in the newsroom or is one that reporters tended to avoid? It depends where you were in the hierarchy of the newsroom. If you were a young intern, as I was in 72, if you got a chance to write a a news obit based off whatever a funeral guy 
told you on the phone, that was your chance to make put some creativity in the paper. After that, when you became a regular beat reporter or a sign reporter, it wasn't so much of a plum. But I always liked it because I started out writing them, so I thought they were fun to write and fun to report. Now, what appealed to you about them? Well, you get a chance... I would say that you get a chance to find the unusual parts of ordinary people's lives. You know, there's several types of obits and news obits and classified obits, and the powerful will always get their obits in the paper, but those who aren't don't always get that news obit. So I look for the people who normally wouldn't make the front pages with their with their deaths because, you know, everybody has something interesting about them. It's just a question of finding it. So I look for that. I love that stuff. Well, I want to get to uh, some of those people that you discovered who may have been a little less famous. But before we we get there, is it true that newspapers uh, have obituaries written up on celebrities or well-known people well in advance of their death just in case they happen to kick the bucket the night before? Well, there's two answers to that good question. That is, first of all, the wire services always have a, um, a morgue of, of advanced obits of important people or actors or politicians who are, who are pretty near the, the the grave line. And locally, we used to, back in the day when we had, you know, a, a full, full staff at the State Journal and Cap Times and everywhere else, there were there was a small cachet of advanced written obits with the basics. And but I don't think that that's there anymore as far as locally goes. I do know that there's at least one in the State Journal um, archives that I wrote, uh, gosh, it has to be seven or eight years ago, that hasn't been used yet. So I know they have one. That's about it. But And also, there's a, um, we used to keep a, a, um, a sort of a cheat sheet um, at night on the night desk with predictions of who would die first. So, <laughs> was there an um, office pool in there involved? It wasn't an official pool, but it was um, the copy desk may have kept their own pool because those guys were always doing weird things, but uh, it was a it was this very interesting list. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Were there people who were particularly good at predicting who was going to die next? Oh yeah, the old time copy desk guys. They they had a second or third sense about that. They knew who was who was who was going to kick it next. That's for sure. So tell me how you researched uh, some of your stories. I mean, you you talked about how you really liked talking about people who might otherwise not have gotten an obituary. How yeah. did you find out about them, and how did you find out about their lives? Well, there's a, a several ways to do that. For a long time, I was a police reporter, so I, I knew my way around the police department and the coroner's office and the fire department, and um, I also knew where, where and how to read the reports. If there was a, something called a death investigation report that, that came through the system, I kind of kept my ears open for that to see if there was something I might be interested in. Also, when you develop um, a long-time beat, uh, people will come to trust you, and they'll tip you off, or they'll call you and say, well, you know, this one looks a little fishy, or they found somebody over here, and you might want to look at that one, uh, that sort of thing. And then there's, there's <laughs> the also goes back to the police beat, and when I was writing a column, I would be hanging out, and if I noticed somebody was missing, I'd wonder, well, what the hell happened with that person? Or they, or they might walk in the front door, like the mayor... The mayor of the Mezo New Beach walked in the front door looking for me, and uh, this was, and I did a profile of him. Um, and then, and when he died, I had all that good background, and also I knew who to contact. So 
that always helps. We're always gathering string on interesting people. Tell us a little more about the mayor of the nude beach in Mazamani. What was his name? And, and what that was, was Charlie, name? Charlie Wise. He, um, um, this goes way back to maybe, wait a second, I don't know what was anyway, he was, uh, uh, turns out he was a lawyer from the Twin Cities who um, just went to a cuckoo and, and got his van and drove down to Mazo and where he had been before and parked his van there and moved in and became the mayor of the nude beach. And, and that was it, except that he had no money and he was, was on sort of a disability and he was kind of an autocrat, uh, a tyrant, as someone would say. Uh, and over the years, his teeth started falling out and of course he was well canned, but and he finally got to a point where he had no money and his van didn't start and he had one suit, so he put that on. It was about three sizes too big and drove to Madison and called me up and we had a nice chat and and because of that, he ended up getting a place to live temporarily. And I think he lasted for eight years before he, he died. I, the, the, I suspect it was uh, suicide, and, but that wasn't unpredicted either, unpredictable either. In fact, there's like two, two or three suicides in the book, which is unusual because the general rule for newspapers is you don't write suicide. You just don't. So, so did you did you break that rule on occasion and and oh yeah why? when I was when I was writing I got I broke that two or three times I think over the forty years or so because um, a couple of times when I was writing a column and I got a lot of leeway there another time I was writing a personal uh, thing about a friend so uh, and the thing is with suicides the general rule uh, I don't know if it's the same now is that if it's something that takes place in public. Where where other people know about it right there, and you have to explain it, then you explain it, but you don't you don't puff it up at all. No, I, I one of the things that was fascinating about uh, reading your your book was um, you focused a lot on uh, people who were sort of down out, um, yeah. many were homeless, but some of them you turned up some fascinating back histories. Tell us about Angel Babcock Burns Richardson. Oh, Angel, one of my favorite people. She'll always be one of my favorite people. I noticed her on the streets back when I was covering late night cops and I was on the streets myself and and um um and just kept touching with what was a just kept touch with her. She was very irascible, so it wasn't like you sit down over a cup of coffee and a cigarette with her. But she was a presence and uh, not a commanding presence. And I can't remember exactly when she died I decided that I should I should try. Nobody really paid any attention. So I said, well, this, this woman's been around a long time. Let me start checking. And once I jumped into that story of Angel, it was, it just, it was like a, a Disney blossoming tree. You know, she was of an incredible background. She spoke fluent French and sometimes she'd be in the Memorial Library reading a French novel or, and, <laughs> and the cops knew her really well. She was never a problem, but, they knew her really well because, in fact, one cop, he used to keep a $20 bill in his desk drawer at the police station. And once a month or so, uh, Angel would walk in, shuffle in. Uh, she usually wore slippers. And uh, they'd let her go over to Angel's desk, and he'd pull out his $20 bill and give it to her because it was like the end of the month, and she then got her check or something. And then, you know, she'd come back and give him the money back, but she got her uh, money back. But her background was so sad. Um, she was she had 
twins and lost them both. Uh, she thought they were dead, but they really weren't. And it was it's an amazing story about people in uh, person in Madison lived there almost her whole life. And there were right. rumors she was involved in the French Resistance. Yeah, they were. In fact, there were. Um, um, <laughs> the story led all the way to the West Coast. I think Portland, um, where the woman or a woman who married one of her sons had gotten a chest of uh, letters or something like that. A lot of them in French, but she had moved to Europe with her family. It was very well off. And there were rumors that they were involved in the French resistance out there. You know, you can't prove that, but there was uh, those kind of rumors last a long time. So, yeah, she was a great story. I give credit to my editor at the time, Joyce Daly, who said, yeah, stay on this because um, ordinarily on a deadline, that's why it's called deadline. You just got to write it and move on. So, I spent some time on that one, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Simon Sparrow. Oh, Simon. If you were at the Memorial Union back in the day, how long have you been around, oh, Brian? Maybe 25 years? Yeah, you? I think that's yeah. about 25 years, yes. Yeah, um, when have been before your time? Did you know Simon? No, but tell, tell us about him. He was um, uh, an outlier artist. He was, he was just a brilliant at drawing things, but then he, his, his art would have items in them from all over the place, pebbles, stones marbles, belt buckles, but, and, he, and he wore a tunic, and uh, he was a commanding presence, uh, not large, but just very commanding, with a, a white beard. He would uh, be at the Memorial Union um, working on his art, and people were just fascinated. And uh, his stuff started to sell, and he had, a, he had a gallery rep in Chicago, and he had just the greatest outlook on life. He says, and before it is what it is became a trite cliche, he just said, you take things as they come. He was, he was one of Madison's really fine cultural, we can't call him an icon because he would turn it down, cultural representatives, I think. Uh, good guy. We've been speaking yeah. with retired Wisconsin State Journal reporter George Hesselberg. His new book, Deadlines, Slices of Life from the Obit Beat, is out now from Wisconsin Historical Society Press. George, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the week ahead in local government. The Past Isn't Past talks about flight attendants' victorious sex discrimination case of 1986. And we review two new movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan city and county agendas to see what's up next for local government. 
Conkle joined WORT's Dylan Brogan shortly before airtime today. Hey, hey, it is Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from forwardlookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Hello, Brenda. Hello, Dylan. We'll start with Dane County, per usual, 530 already in progress. It's the city-county, so this is a twofer here, uh, Homeless Issues Committee, uh, the city-county Homeless Issues Committee, and they're meeting virtual, like uh, nearly all the meetings. Well, they're looking at those two pieces of property the city would like to buy. One of them is um, Zyre Road, which is where they were originally going to put the men's shelter. They are now looking to purchase that for a temporary shelter. Um, with the plan being that when they purchase a second piece of property, if they can't find another location for the men's shelter, they can put it there. Uh, It will just take a while to build it. So they're looking at those two pieces of property, and then they're also getting some presentations about the city and county budgets, and they will be deciding if they are going to uh, make any recommendations about the budgets. Hmm. Have you you ever seen the movie Contact, Brenda? Oh, I have not. It's a much better book than a movie, (laughs) but there's a machine that costs trillions to build or whatever and uh you know there's a line from uh, whatever rich dudes in it it's just like well why buy why not buy two at double the price <laughs> with that huge distraction we'll move on to the redistricting commission uh also happening right now there's a committee of the whole meeting as well so the the dane county board they're they're getting into these maps they are um so the county board tonight they're getting that presentation there's option A, C, and G. So they're looking at those three options. They're getting a presentation. Uh, executive committee will take it up later in the week twice, um, but it won't be back at the county board on Thursday, but they are looking to move pretty quickly on this. And does this need, the city maps got to be approved by the council? Um, yeah, the, so they're both going through a redistricting process right now. Oh, okay, so this um, is the just for the supervisors. goes one. first, and yep. then the city goes, and then I think the county goes back and does some finish-up work. Tuesday, Five o'clock. We have a number of committees that are talking budget. So, Brenda, yeah, the, it's it's happening. We're here. Budget season. So who's talking about budget uh, specifically tomorrow night for Dane County? So five o'clock, the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, the ENER committee. Um, they will be getting presentations about their budget. They cover um, University of Wisconsin um, extension as well as land and water resources development, parks department, things like that. At 5.15, Public Protection and Judiciary will be meeting. Uh, they do clerk of courts, public safety, family court, medical examiner, sheriff, district attorney, yeah. court counsel, all the things that you would expect to hear in public protection and judiciary. And then at 5.30, Public Works and Transportation is also covering budget, and they'll be hearing from the Airport Alliance Energy Center and Henry Vallesi. So it is budget time at the county. Um, start looking to see what kind of amendments the supervisors may be looking at to Joe Priestley's budget. That's right. And uh, Wednesday, uh, it's kind of a back and forth between redistricting and budgets this week. So 5 o'clock Wednesday, we have that first of the executive committee of the Dane County Board meeting to talk about uh, supervisors' map, the maps for the county elections. And then Thursday, we have they're, they're back at it, 5 p.m. And then we have an executive committee meeting of the Dane County Board that talks about the budget. And then it's a full county board meeting. So maybe walk us through uh, the budget stuff for the executive committee and the county board. How close are they getting there? Sure. Executive committee will be getting presentations from Dane County Executive's Office, County Clerk, um, Equity Inclusion Office, as well as the county board. 
So those are the, the places that they cover. Um, that again will be five o'clock um, Thursday. And then they will be um, doing, they will be considering uh, which maps they wanna forward on to the county board. They will be meeting twice this week. And so they should be getting close to a decision on that. The timeline is very short because of the state deadlines. And so they are working very fast and furious. Um, interesting enough, 7 p.m. on Thursday night, county board is meeting. Wasn't a whole lot of stuff that was in there that was super interesting. I think they're all super busy with the budget and redistricting. And so there's not a lot of different proposals coming forward, but they will be going through all their routine stuff, zoning petitions, bills and accounts and other uh, budget amendments. Okay. So that's uh, kind of a low key county board meeting because all the stuff's happening committee right now. It is. <laughs> all right. So we'll move on to the city of Madison then. Brenda was just explaining earlier to me how we have a number of committee meetings that have no agendas, so we'll have to figure out, uh, I guess, tomorrow morning whether they're meeting or they just got to post their agenda or whatever. So go to forwardlookout.com um, for, to find out more information about that. Lots, but Yeah, lots more meetings this week. Yes, and then at 6 p.m., though, uh, Tuesday, which is a weird. It looks like the Alcohol License Review Committee is meeting real quick to sneak in one uh one more uh, alcohol license before the Common Council meeting at 6.30. So that's what looks like the case. And, and then uh, the Common Council looks like they have um, a lengthy agenda that is more budget-focused. Am I right about that? Um, yep. So, um, yeah, uh, 1133 Williamson Street, uh, Tokyo Sushi. Uh, they're going to get the uh, liquor license recommendation at 6 p.m. And then at 6.30, the, the council will be meeting. Again, several um, liquor licenses are up for uh, hearing. And then they are, the capital budget will be out tomorrow, or the capital budget hearing will be tomorrow, and the operating budget will be coming out. So watch tomorrow for more details about the mayor's operating budget. Yes. Um, other yes. things that you will see is some plan commissions got some plans to um, change how demolition applications are done. Um, there's also some changes to um, how Madison, uh, how the city council conducts their meetings. Um, so there'll be some change, some changes there. Um, and then uh, Judge Joe Square, of course, is up again for for discussion because it seems like it almost always is up for discussion. Um, there's some funds that they'll be awarding to the public market and some more money going to the public health department to support uh, COVID recovery efforts. Um, and then they will also have the proposal about uh, the men's shelter um, purchasing those two pieces of property. So, so that's um, probably that's the big item of debate tomorrow out. night. Yeah. Wednesday, uh, we have the Urban Design Commission. They got uh, properties on 100 block of Hamilton, on the 6,000 blocks of Milwaukee Street, and the 500 blocks of um, Johnson looks like a kind of a, that's a big project right there. But uh Forlookout.com uh, if those affect, if those are in your neighborhoods and uh, but the board of, the board of public works is meeting at 4:30. What's on their agenda, Brenda? They have um, consulting for environmental assessments and remediation services to the city of Madison, which may be of interest. Um, you know, we often have a lot of environmental um, properties that we that we are looking at uh, purchasing that have environmental concerns, and so who who does those assessments is important to some folks. Uh, how about we just talk about the library board and uh, call it a call it a night because a lot of routine business, a lot of things in development. It seems like in both Dane County and the city this week, and kind of the final votes were in the weeks ahead. Yeah, and then there's those six meetings on Thursday. We still don't have agendas for, so that's a little bit weird too. 
Um, but yeah, Madison Public Library Board will be meeting. They'll be talking about their vision, mission, values, and strategic lenses that they look at things through. Um, they will be talking about the budget and getting their financial reports. And then they will be looking at the operating calendar for uh, the public libraries for 2022. There's probably going to be a lot more meetings this week. So uh, go to forwardlookout.com for more information about Dane County and City of Madison agendas and meeting times and just uh, all around good information. Brenda, thank you for keeping us in the know about all that. You're welcome. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson talks about flight attendants' Victoria sex discrimination case of 1986 and the case's impact on labor organizing in the airline industry. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. This Wednesday, October 6th, marks the day in 1986 when flight attendants won a $37 million sex discrimination suit against United Airlines. They gained reinstatement of their jobs, back pay, seniority, and pension adjustments. The settlement directly affected 1,725 people who had to quit when they got married. The suit concluded their civil rights were violated. About 475 flight attendants were reinstated within a few weeks of the settlement. The case was one of the oldest and most complex sex discrimination cases in the nation. It began when one flight attendant, Mary Sprogus, decided to fight back. In 1966, she filed a complaint with the Federal Equal Opportunities Commission, EEOC. She had resigned from United Airlines over the no marriage rule. The EEOC found probable cause that the airline had violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Sprogas then filed a federal discrimination lawsuit in 1968 after United hired 48 single men as flight attendants and allowed them to stay on the job when they got married. The men were native Hawaiians brought on for its Honolulu roots to provide what United called local color. Six weeks later, United cut a deal with the flight attendants union. Current employees could get married and keep their jobs, but it would be another three years before United began hiring married women. The lawsuit led to U.S. District Judge Joseph Sam Perry's 1970 ruling that the marriage ban was illegal. Later that year, the class action lawsuit was filed and consolidated with the Sprogas case, but legal delays by United stalled the case until both sides agreed to negotiate a settlement in 84. There had been flight attendants since passenger travel started in the 20s. The first attendants were male. Women attendants became common in the 30s. Initially, they had practical uniforms like nurses. Women immediately started organizing to protect their rights. By 1945, the Association of Flight Attendants, AFA, organized at United Airlines. Several different unions were formed to represent flight attendants, most merging in 1973. Organizing was given new impetus by the sexist advertising and dress code demanded by the airlines in the late 60s and early 70s. The FA became a fairly militant union. They developed a rolling job action called chaos, intermittent strikes designed to maximize impact while minimizing the risk to flight attendants. This worked over 
several months in a 1993 dispute with Alaska Airlines. After that, American West, AirTran, and U.S. Airways all settled with the AFA on the eve of possible chaos in the 90s. A three-week chaos campaign resulted in a favorable settlement with Midwest Airlines in 2002. Other chaos campaigns benefited workers in bankruptcy negotiations against United Airlines in 2005 and Northwest in 2008. Currently, the union represents nearly 50,000 flight attendants at 17 airlines. Their president, Sarah Nelson, gained national notoriety in January of 2019, when she was supposed to be accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award from the AFL-CIO. A brief video of Nelson speaking out against sexism and harassment in the airline industry showed, and Nelson took the stage. She gave an emotional speech about the ongoing government shutdown. A budgetary impasse had forced 800,000 federal workers to work without pay for 30 days, as Transportation Security Administration agents gradually stopped coming to work. Nelson's voice had gradually grown louder in calling for an end to the stalemate. Speaking on behalf of an alliance she'd built of pilots, baggage handlers, and other airline workers, whose safety was now at risk, she extolled the power of workers to push politicians to a solution. Then she uttered seven words, end this shutdown with a general strike. As headlines highlighted her remarks, air traffic controllers at two East Coast facilities called in sick in sufficient numbers to disrupt flights out of LaGuardia Airport. A spokesperson for the National Air Traffic Controllers Association said, quote, Air traffic controllers are prohibited by law from engaging any strike or work shutdown. They never would engage in job action, ever. End quote. Once the prospect of a significant interruption in air travel became very real, Congress and President Trump acted quickly. The shutdown ended a few days later. Like the Wobblies say, Direct action gets the goods. Difficult working conditions for flight attendants shows the need for union solidarity and innovation now more than ever. There are rumors that Nelson will be running for president of the FLCIO where we could really use some militants on a national level. And that is our story for today. For the Passes and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Wisconsin currently houses several thousand evacuees from Afghanistan. As they look to resettle in the United States, their experience is being compared to the state's Hmong population, which steadily increased after refugees fled Laos following the Vietnam War. For more, we turn to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Prominent Hmong leaders say their people have made significant contributions after arriving in Wisconsin under similar circumstances. 
In the decades after the Vietnam War, Wisconsin's Hmong population rose to become the third highest in the nation. The leaders note that when given the opportunity, they found ways to assimilate and make contributions. Paul Lohr, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, says it became pretty clear over time. Particularly in the 90s, Hmong American families started buying homes and getting better jobs. And basically, the, the life in Northeast Wisconsin almost transformed, you could say, o- overnight. And while there were challenges along the way, those who stepped into larger roles served as culture brokers, giving Hmong communities a bigger voice. Today, there are calls for giving Afghan refugees the chance to set a similar path with support and aid. Some GOP members of Wisconsin's congressional delegation have raised safety concerns, but advocates say these refugees have been vetted and many worked for the U.S. during the war in Afghanistan. Mai Zhang Vu of the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families says Hmong families have set down roots in many cities, including Milwaukee, Wausau, and Eau Claire. She adds contributions will continue to come from future generations who were born here. Our future American taxpayers can only be as productive as what we feed for them in knowledge, in experience, and opportunities. Vu, who is also board president of Wisconsin's Hmong Institute, says preserving cultural heritage is a key part of shaping these descendants' futures, which can help give them a sense of identity. Both Fu and Laura expressed their thoughts at a recent panel discussion led by the Wisconsin Historical Society. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson checks out two new movies. Best Sellers, a disappointing comedy starring Michael Caine in the long-anticipated Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark. We need relevant writers that can make us relevant again. Is there anyone dead we can revive? Maybe, but he's not dead. Who? Harry Shaw. He's dead. Back her off. That was slipped from the trailer for the disappointing, predictable comedy with a fine cast, bestsellers, directed by Lena Roselier. It just takes too long for its main character, Harris Shaw, the always watchable Michael Caine, to become a human being. Shaw is a brutal SOB who hates everybody. He had a great novel 50 years ago and hasn't been seen or heard from since. Enter desperate publisher Lucy Stanbridge, a fine Aubrey Plaza, whose business is failing. She desperately needs a bestseller, but then her faithful aide, Rachel Spence, a wonderful Ellen Wong, discovers Shaw's old contract. Shaw owes them a novel, so they're off to see Shaw as Rachel reads on her phone all the trouble he has gotten into. This includes threatening to shoot someone. I thought he was a bear. To which Lucy says, in effect, you can't believe everything someone says online. But we've already seen Shaw alone in his messy house, very frustrated, drinking, and trying to type on a great-looking old typewriter. He throws a fit when he's called on his old-fashioned rotary phone, eventually pitching it out a closed window. Lucy and Rachel arrive at his place. There's no answer at the front door, so Lucy insists on going around back. They walk in through the back door, with Rachel protesting to a sleeping Shaw. He's roused by the noise and picks up his handy shotgun. A panicky Rachel says, We're not bears. That this is one of the movie's funniest scenes tells you something about the level of writing by Anthony Grieco and the talent of our principal actors. Lucy tells Shaw that she's the new publisher, replacing her dad, and that he owes her a book. He also has to do a book tour. 
or she can edit the book. Shaw initially refuses, but he's facing foreclosure on his home. He delivers the book as Lucy is about to sign over the company to a competitor. Lucy is momentarily grateful, that is, until she has to go on tour with him. The tour is a very strange trip that ends in a predictable place without much joy in getting there. I can't recommend this movie. I hope to see these three together in a much better movie. Kane and Plaza work well together, as does Wong in her supporting role. Now for a more serious film set in Newark in the 60s and early 70s. Bees. Anthony got kicked out of school. I went through all that trouble. And for what? I'm always being accused. You gotta be good. I want to do whatever I can to help the family. That was a clip from the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark, directed by Al Taylor, who directed several episodes of TV's Soprano. This movie is a prequel for the popular groundbreaking HBO series. It ran six seasons from 1999 to 2007. It starred James Gandolfini as mob boss Tony Soprano. This film is a pretty good gangster period piece with a solid cast. It's fairly violent. I think it stands well on its own, but it probably is more satisfying and perhaps a little frustrating for the show's fans. The film is set in two time periods, 1967, when Tony is around 11, played by William Ludwig, and in 1971-72, when he's a teenager, played by Mark Gandolfini, the real-life son of James Gandolfini. He's convincing in the role. The movie explores the relationship of Tony with his uncle, mentor, Dickie Moltisanti, a pretty good Alessandro Nivoli. Dickie has a superficial cool, but his deeper self seems conflicted by his dark, violent temper and a need to make up for it. Meanwhile, he's the only one an increasingly unruly Tony will listen to. Tony himself is conflicted. He wants to play football and go to college, but part of him is attracted to his uncle's life. The story shows the Newark riot and the rise of African-American gang rivals, led by Dickie's high school friend and underling, Harold McBear, the great Leslie Odom Jr., but doesn't give it enough context. Ray Liotta, as Hollywood Dick, has an all-too-brief part as Dickie's dad. Sadly, the women in the film have traditional limited roles. Chiefly, the sensual Jessapina Michela de la Rosa, as Hollywood's much younger wife, and Leah Vera Farmiga, as Tony's mom. All in all, though a well-done film, See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>